0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. I think it's fair to say that just about all of us have had times in our lives when circumstances feel overwhelming. We've experienced things that have tested our faith in a significant way and just really been a struggle to get through. Perhaps in some instances, they've even brought us right up to our breaking point. Now, one person who comes to mind in this regard is Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, now, I'm sure many of you have probably heard the story of her husband, Jim Elliott, the missionary who, along with four of his associates, was martyred while trying to bring the gospel to the Horani people. The Horani were a tribe deep in the Amazon rainforest and uh, were commonly called Alcas, meaning savage, because of, uh, they were just so violent. Even the other tribes in the area called them that. Um, but five missionaries, including Jim Elliot, went to this tribe and engaged them with the goal of bringing the gospel to them. Unfortunately, all five of them ended up dying in the process, leaving their wives, including Elizabeth Elliot, as widows. Elizabeth was 30 years old at the time and was left to raise their 10-month-old daughter Valerie on her own. So that was Elizabeth's first experience of significant suffering. However, it wouldn't be her last. Now, if you've heard the story before, then you know that Elizabeth and another of the widows went back to that same Horani tribe, successfully shared the gospel with them, and saw the majority of the tribe become Christians. However, what you might not have heard is what happened after all of that. Um, After uh, all that took place, Elizabeth remarried. Her new husband was named Addison Leitch, who was a uh, professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. However, just three years after the couple got married, they discovered that Addison had cancer. And after 10 months of fervent prayers and unsuccessful treatments, Addison finally succumbed to the cancer, leaving Elizabeth as a widow again, this time in her 40s. And there are also several other instances that I could mention from Elizabeth's life, but suffice it to say that this dear woman knew what it was to suffer in very deep and profound ways. And yet, in the midst of her suffering, Heartache, she never allowed herself to lose sight of God and of God's goodness and of the fact that God has a plan, mysterious as that plan might be at times. In fact, Elizabeth was even able to rejoice in the midst of her suffering. So, how in the world was she able to do that? Well, to put it in some of her own words, The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Again, the secret to joy in the midst of suffering is Christ in me, not, as is so often imagined, me in a different set of circumstances. And that truth right there, stated so well by Elizabeth Elliot, is precisely what we're going to see in our main passage of Scripture this morning. Acts 16, 16 through 40. Uh, to remind you of the context here, Paul and Silas are traveling from city to city on what's often known as Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, we read about them arriving in the city of Philippi and seeing the Lord open the heart of a woman named Lydia to embrace the gospel along with her entire household. We then read this about Paul and Silas's subsequent ministry efforts in Philippi, beginning in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So this girl here has a demon in her that's saying things that are technically true, but in reality are meant to mock Paul and Silas. There's also the danger that some onlookers might get confused and think that Paul and Silas are in some sort of partnership with this evil spirit. And so finally, you know, Paul has enough of these shenanigans. Uh, We read in the second half of verse 18 that Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, real quick here, there's a lot of debate about uh, whether Christians today uh, are able to do this kind of thing. So, uh, if we believe that someone has a demon, should we attempt to command that demon to leave in Jesus' name, Or should we simply pray to God for that person's deliverance? Uh, There are good theologians on both sides of this issue. Uh, My personal view is that I don't see anything in the Bible that says we can't uh, command the demon to leave. And also we do see several examples in Scripture, not just of Jesus issuing such commands, but also of his disciples issuing commands of that nature, verse 18 here being just one of those examples. However, I think we should also keep in mind Paul's instructions in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, about the main ways in which Christians engage in spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul outlines the various elements of what he calls the armor of God and presents these things as essentially a ready-made toolkit for spiritual warfare. And one of the most notable features, in my opinion, of that toolkit is actually what's not in the toolkit, which is any mention of speaking directly to demons or commanding them to leave. Instead, the primary ways in which we engage in spiritual warfare are astonishingly ordinary. I mean, things like reading the Bible and praying and remaining steadfast in the gospel. So to to sum it all up, I don't think it's inappropriate to command demons to leave in Jesus's name. I myself have done that in several situations and has also uh, advised other Christians to do that. However, I don't believe that's the central way in which we engage in spiritual warfare. I would certainly encourage our congregation to focus on the kinds of things, uh, the, the majority of our energy on the kinds of things that we see listed in Ephesians chapter 6. And if you have questions about any of that or want to know more, do feel free to ask me after the service. But continuing on in our passage here, we read about the aftermath of this exorcism of the servant girl in verses 19 through 24. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So as you can see here, the situation quickly spirals out of control. Paul and Silas are dragged out into the town square, vilified by an angry mob, stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods until their backs are probably a bloody mess, thrown into the maximum security wing of the local jail and then forced into stocks that were specifically designed to make things as uncomfortable as possible. So if any of you have ever had a a gospel conversation with with someone that you didn't think went very well, I'm pretty sure Paul and Silas have you beat there. And yet, we read the most amazing thing in verse 25 about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And it's from that that we see the main idea of this passage come into focus, which is that the joy of knowing Jesus transcends any situation we'll ever face. Again, the joy of knowing Jesus transcends any situation we'll ever face. Now, there's a lot we could say about this joy, but the first thing I'd like us to observe here is that this joy wasn't in any way the product of Paul and Silas being in denial about their situation or not feeling the weight of their circumstances. Uh, Notice in verse 25 that they were not only expressing their joy by singing hymns to God, but were also praying. Although we're not told what exactly they were praying for, uh, it's hard to imagine their requests not uh, including numerous um, petitions for help and for God's intervention. So they were fully aware of the dire situation they were in, and yet they were filled with joy. How was that possible for them? we have to ask. And even more, how is that possible for us? And first and foremost, I believe it's because of Jesus. It's the joy, as stated in the main idea, specifically of knowing Jesus that transcends any situation we'll ever face. You see, all of the earthly blessings that we often enjoy can be taken away from us, Things can happen to our family. I mean, we're seeing that in Ukraine right now, right? Things can happen to our family and to our health and to our homes and to our jobs. And on and on we could go. None of it is ultimately secure. It can all be taken away at any moment. And yet our relationship with Jesus and the blessings that we have in him can never be taken away. Right? The blessings of being redeemed from our sins and clothed with Christ's righteousness. And being indwelt by the, the very spirit of God. Adopted into God's family. Made heirs, 1 Peter says, of an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. These are all blessings that can never be taken away. And therefore, even when other blessings are taken away, we can rejoice in the fact that these blessings won't be. We'll always have Jesus and the blessings found in him. And friends, as long as we have Jesus, truly, we have everything. We'll never be lacking anything essential to our joy. As I've heard one uh, pastor say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In addition to that, the Bible actually uh, it gives us reason to rejoice not only in the midst of our suffering, as we've been talking about so far, but as strange as it might sound at first, even in the suffering itself. And there are three specific reasons the Bible gives us to do that. First, suffering shapes us to be more like Jesus. Suffering shapes us to be more like Jesus. Romans 8, 28 and 29 states, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we're told there that all things work together for good and that good is then defined as being conformed to the image of Jesus. We also find a specific directive to rejoice in our trials in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, we can rejoice in our suffering because of the way that suffering refines our character and Shapes us into the kind of person that God wants us to be. At the end of the day, there are things God desires to accomplish in our lives that simply can't be accomplished any other way. So he uses suffering the way a surgeon might use a scalpel making the perfect kinds of incisions in the perfect places to accomplish his perfect purposes. Not one incision that doesn't have a purpose. You could also compare it to an ironsmith working at his trade. You know, in order to shape that iron into something that's useful or simply beautiful, He has to heat that iron in a very hot furnace and then put it on the anvil and strike it with his hammer in exactly the right ways. That's the only way that iron can become what it needs to be. Likewise, we also have to go through that furnace of affliction so that we're malleable. And then be hammered into shape by God through our circumstances. So th- th- there's not really any part of that process that feels very good, but we know that the ironsmith is faithful. Second, not only does suffering shape us to be more like Jesus, it also strengthens our hope of heavenly glory. Paul writes, In er, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the reason Paul gives for not losing heart is the role that his afflictions play in turning his attention to and indeed even preparing him for the incomparable glories of heaven. And it's because those heavenly glories are so great that Paul's able to refer to all of his many hardships that he suffered on this earth as light momentary. Affliction. Similarly, in Romans 5, 3-5, Paul talks about rejoicing in suffering and specifically ties it to the way suffering strengthens our hope of heavenly glory. He writes, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice the logical sequence there. Paul rejoices in his suffering because suffering produces endurance. Endurance contributes to and is a key aspect of our overall character. And increasingly godly character confirms that we're genuinely saved and thus produces greater hope within us. So again, we see that suffering strengthens our hope of future glory. And then finally, a third reason to rejoice in suffering is that suffering weans us from earthly pleasures so that we might find infinitely greater joy in Jesus. You know, it's pretty easy, even natural, for us to get caught up And all of the treasures and pleasures of this world. Even though these things are very shallow and and temporary, they're also right in front of us and um, offer some measure of immediate gratification. Yet God has a plan for weaning us from these earthly pleasures so that we can experience more of the infinitely greater pleasures found in Jesus. And God's plan for that weaning process consists of one element in particular that's especially important. I'll give you a hint. It starts with an S and ends with suffering. <laughs> you guessed it, suffering. It is suffering God uses for that purpose. God's method is to temporarily take away from us everything that's been functioning as a cheap substitute for the pleasures found in Jesus so that we're essentially left with no other choice but to start looking to Jesus for those pleasures and that joy. And when God brings us to that place where Jesus is more or less all we have, and we discover that Jesus is all we need. In fact, he's, he's more than all we need. You know, we discovered that the pleasures found in Christ infinitely surpass all of the earthly pleasures that we once thought were so wonderful. You know, it would be kind of like taking a child who might have been having an okay time playing in their room and bringing that child to Disney World and giving them no choice but to spend time at Disney World. That child might at first resist the idea of going to Disney World and tell you that they're having fun playing in their room and that they don't want to stop playing in their room. They might say that, especially if they've never been to Disney World before. But what are they almost certainly going to do once they get to Disney World and see what it's all about? They're never going to want to leave. Right? Because the fun to be had at Disney World vastly surpasses the fun to be had playing in your room. And the same is true for us when God takes away earthly pleasures. He's actually showing his love for us by weaning us off of these lesser pleasures so that we'll discover in greater measure the infinitely superior pleasures found in Christ. As David says to God in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, nowhere else, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No other pleasures rival the pleasures found in Christ. And suffering drives us to the full enjoyment of those pleasures. So, these are three of the key reasons why we as Christians can rejoice in our suffering. Suffering shapes us to be more like Jesus, strengthens our hope of heavenly glory, and weans us from earthly pleasures so that we can find infinitely greater joy in Christ. Now, of course, none of this is to say that suffering isn't difficult. I mean, sometimes it's incredibly difficult, and I don't want to minimize that at all, um, even to the point of being somewhat uh, nearly unbearable. But someone who has Jesus has infinitely more to rejoice in when they're at their worst Than someone who doesn't have Jesus has to rejoice in when they're at their best. Let me say that again. Someone who has Jesus has infinitely more to rejoice in when they're at their worst than someone who doesn't have Jesus has to rejoice in when they're at their best. And when we uh, are able to rejoice in Christ, even when life's difficult, that also says something to the people around us. It's a powerful testimony to those who aren't yet Christians about the difference that Jesus has made in our lives and that he can make in their lives. Returning to our main passage in Acts 16, look at verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. We didn't read in verses 35 through 40 that the city magistrates gave orders to uh, release Paul and Silas, and at Paul's request even personally escorted them out of the city as a public recognition of their innocence. But going back to verse 25, look at the effect. That Paul and Silas' rejoicing had on the other prisoners. It says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So the other prisoner, prisoners are fascinated by Paul and Silas's behavior. I imagine they were probably thinking, you know, what's up with these guys? Don't they know they're in jail? Many of them were probably more than a little intrigued about how Paul and Silas could have such joy even in the midst of such suffering. And then a few verses later, we see the effect Paul and Silas' behavior had on the jailer as well. Not only did Paul and Silas rejoice in the midst of their suffering, but also when the earthquake hit, they saw that situation not as an opportunity for escape but as an opportunity for witness. So, they stayed right where they were. And sure enough, verses 29 and 30 record how the jailer fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't know how many jailers uh, you've encountered, but from uh, what I've experienced in my own ministry at the Allegheny County Jail, uh, jailers are usually pretty tough-skinned people who have seen a lot of things and dealt with a lot of things and who aren't afraid to speak their minds and tell it like it is whether someone likes it or not. So they don't mess around usually. And I imagine jailers in the first century were the same way. So what convinced this tough-skinned jailer to approach Paul and Silas the way he did? Well, there were probably several factors at work here. First of all, Paul had literally just saved this guy's life. A few moments earlier, the jailer had thought his life was over. You see, Roman law dictated that any jailer who let prisoners escape would receive the same punishment that those prisoners would have received. In many cases, death. I guess that's one way to motivate them to do a good job. So that's why verse 27 records the jailer getting ready to kill himself uh, before Paul Paul calls out to him and stops him. However, uh, I believe another very important factor uh, in the jailer's conversion was the remarkable joy that Paul and Silas exhibited when they were sitting in their jail cell before the earthquake hit. Jesus had changed. Paul and Silas in a radical way through the gospel so that they now had a unique kind of joy. And that joy stood out as an anomaly from anything the jailer had ever seen before. And likewise today, when we're in the midst of suffering, What a powerful testimony it is when we as Christians exhibit a joy that transcends our circumstances. Don't underestimate the impact you can have on the people around you by the way you respond to suffering. Will you continue trusting in God? And finding your strength in God. And even praising God. In the midst of whatever trials might come your way. That right there will make a greater impact in the people around us. Than just about anything else that we could do or say. If you want to show someone who's not yet a Christian. That the gospel has real power to change people's lives? Let them see you rejoice in your suffering. And that will probably speak more powerfully to them than a hundred other conversations ever could. And maybe, just maybe, that's a part of God's purpose in allowing you to go through that suffering. Have you ever considered that before? Have you ever considered the possibility that God may have allowed that trial into your life, at least in part, specifically because he wants you to rejoice in the midst of that suffering and thereby bear witness to people in your life about the God you worship and the gospel you believe? So let me encourage you, no matter what your circumstances may be, to vigorously, relentlessly pursue joy in Christ. Push through anything and everything that might be weighing you down and fight for that joy every day. I mean, it it is a battle, but I believe a battle that's worth fighting. As I've already alluded to several times, the ultimate source of our joy is, of course, Jesus. Friends, understand that there is not a single path of suffering you'll ever travel that Jesus hasn't already traveled ahead of you. He knows from experience how broken and messed up this world is. He experienced it himself. For 33 years, experiencing, among other things, the premature death of his father, financial hardship, temptation from Satan, exclusion from society, the scorn and slander of his enemies, betrayal by one of his closest friends, and of course, the public humiliation, excruciating Of his death on the cross. So whatever you've experienced. Jesus has been there. He's felt. Your pain. And offers to walk with you on that journey. Every step. Of the way. There's never a single moment where He's not present with His people in their suffering. Yet that's not all. Jesus has endured not just what we've endured, but in reality, far more than we'll ever endure. Because as Jesus was crucified on that cross, He endured not just the physical pain of crucifixion, which is itself beyond our comprehension, but the full undiluted wrath of God against sin. You see, our sins deserve God's judgment. In fact, we might even say they cried out for God's judgment. Yet Jesus suffered that that judgment in our place on the cross. He demonstrated depth of his love that he he loved us so much that he took that judgment on himself and then of course after jesus died and was buried he didn't stay in the grave but victoriously and, and triumphantly resurrected from the dead and as a result we also can share in his victory as we repent of our sins and put our trust in jesus and jesus alone To rescue us. So in case you're ever tempted. To doubt. Christ's love for you. In the midst of your suffering. Just look at the cross. And remember. What Jesus suffered. To purchase. Your. Redemption. Even when we had rebelled against him. He He took our sins on himself and suffered in our place. I mean, if if that's not undeniable evidence for the love of God for us, even in the midst of suffering, that I don't know what is. You may not be able to understand everything that you're going through, but you can still have the unshakable confidence that God loves you and is with you and for you in the midst of it all.